0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation
1: by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McLarty. Let me start tonight with a gentle word of admonition because there has been sort of a confluence of information coming my way that has really helped me in my thinking. Last week, at the end of teaching out of Proverbs, and by the way, we're in Proverbs 12, you're welcome to turn there. At the end of looking at it last week, Steve prayed for us, and part of his prayer was, he said, even though some of these things are a little tough to understand, These things are still the word of God. Then this week, I had a conversation with somebody about playing church. What does it mean to play church? How would you define playing church? Then today, I had a conversation with Jeff back there. And Jeff said, I want to make sure that in everything that GCA does, since we're a grace church that proclaims the grace of God and we teach the grace of God, I want to make sure that what we do always is an example of the grace of God. And I agree completely. And so those three things, the common factor to all those, this is the word of God and what is playing church. And I want to make sure that we're always gracious in the things that we do I thought, what is the common denominator here? What's the factor that, that is bringing these three things together at this moment? I think the common denominator is that we do read the word of God and think that is the very word of God. We hear it. We hear it taught. And we think, yeah, that is the word of God. And then we go back to our lives and we sort of forget what we just learned, what we just heard, what we just absorbed. In the book of James, first chapter, starting at verse 22, James writes, prove yourself to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. And once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he is. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and then abides in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. So I think we see time and time again through the Bible that it's it's much more than just hearing it. Don't just make this an intellectual exercise. Don't just hear it and think, boy, it's a good thing they heard it. Boy, that was an important lesson for him to get. Absorb it for yourself, and then as you walk out into the world with it, live it. If you hear about the excellent grace of God, then you certainly ought to, as Jeff said, you certainly ought to, in your life, exude the very grace of God in the things you're doing. If you hear the Bible saying be kind, be gracious, be good to people, be generous, then you certainly ought to do it and not just let that be intellectual information that makes it into your head but doesn't quite make it into your heart. As we're reading through these Proverbs, we've seen a lot of admonitions about what righteousness looks like and what foolishness looks like. Well, those are good lessons for all of us. How do I walk out righteousness. And if I'm not walking out my righteousness according to what the very word of God says, then the word of God does say, well, you're a fool. If you're a hearer only, James says, well, then you're deluding yourself. So I think it's important that we apply these words and not just hear them. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Now, I know, and I'm very happy to say and proud to say that through the years here at GCA, I can say that we really do try to walk these things out. So this is a word of admonition for anybody who needs to hear it, but I'm not pointing at anybody as I say it. Make sense? Who were you pointing at? I wasn't pointing at anybody but you pointed at Ming. Ming pointed at you. Apparently the two of you had better shape up. Yes, sir.
0: I would uh, like to Offer a confession. Okay. I was—I was just sharing with Conrad and Marilyn that I've been listening to uh, Moody Bible Institute's rendition of the the life of Peter Marshall. Uh And Monday was a time in Catherine's Marshall—Catherine Marshall's life when she had tuberculosis. She was basically bedridden for 14 months because they didn't have antibiotics at the end of that 14 months realized that she had been insisting that God ought to do things her way Mm -hmm. and heal her because of all the ministry she was involved in and not saying God what you want is right and by the way when she finally realized that she was healed almost instantly Mm -hmm. so I'm thinking wow I was in the hospital for four days and I had tons of antibiotics and if I didn't have those antibiotics who knows how long I would have been there sick. Yeah. And I did not once complain about God doing something that I didn't like. Um, I recognized His sovereignty in bringing that into my life and you know what I didn't do? I didn't say... Lord, why are you trying to teach me here? Mm -hmm. Lord, there's a reason you're doing this. Is there something I need to learn? Yeah. I never asked that question until
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Monday. So I'm sitting there driving with tears in my eyes because that's the application. I know the doctrine.
1: Yeah. That is a, a good application of what I was getting at. I know the doctrine, but. It's not adequate to just have the head knowledge without that real living it out
0: in rebellion. You know, God, I can't be sick right now, I've got things to do. Right. Right. I didn't do
1: that. I'm important, dog on it.
0: I did not do that. I also can say, Lord, what do you have for me? Right. There's a reason
1: why you're doing this. Right. Yeah. You'd think by now you'd get it. But you know, I would think by now, since I just said that, and I don't mean that to be caustic toward you. I would think by now we'd all get it. We've all been really, really fortunate. We've all had access to the Word of God. We've all been taught in the Word of God. You know, in the last 19 years here at GCA, we've gone verse by verse through every book of the New Testament. We're on our way through it the second time now. We've been very, very fortunate, and yet we're so human that it's just real easy to go on about our lives and forget to apply the stuff we know. We do know it, and yet we don't walk it out. We don't apply it. And that's really what I was getting at. You perfectly encapsulated what I was getting at. All right, so, chapter 12. I know right where we left off last week, we got as far as verse 15. So we will start in verse 15. Now you're going to see a couple of proverbs here that are not so much moral instruction. Some of them are kind of social instruction, but you're also going to see some observations. Solomon just kind of observes that this is the way life is. And it doesn't seem to have a moral component to it as much as it has Just what are you going to do? That's how life is. So let's start at verse 15 where he says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Now that first phrase, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, can be read forward and backwards, which I think is interesting. You can also say, A man who thinks his way is right in his own eyes is a fool, but a fool thinks that whatever he does, however he walks through his life, whatever his mode of life is, that he's able to justify it. He's able to say, well, it's right because because I think it's right, and therefore I'm going to do it, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. So as Solomon continues tonight to define foolishness for us, as he's been doing all along, he contrasts the ability to receive instruction, the ability to listen to instruction, the ability to act on the instruction you've received, versus the fool. He's also going to refer to him as a cynic, as a big talker, as a guy who's really full of himself, And he's going to say, that kind of person doesn't listen to good counsel. A smart person pays attention when somebody tells him something important. For instance, if you go to, let's say, your doctor, and your doctor has run all the tests, and he's got all the x-rays, and he's got the results, and he's about to tell that to you, that's a good time to pay attention. That's not a good time to say, I have my own opinion. I think what I have is actually, I suffer from being way too handsome. That's that's not the time to bring up your own opinion. A wise man, according to Solomon, listens to counsel, listens to good advice, listens to wise men, learned men, knowledgeable men. But a fool won't listen to any of them. He'll just do whatever he thinks is right. Whatever's right in his own eyes, that's what he's going to do. Now, that concept is carried all the way through the Bible. A man goes the way he wants to, the way he's determined to go in his heart. But in the end, it is God who determines the outcome. So that is yet another facet of foolishness that you're not even paying attention to the eternal consequences of the way you're walking out your life, the decisions that you're making, the way that you're treating other people, the way that you're absorbing and putting out information. But a fool, says verse 16, a fool's vexation is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. What that means is, if a fool is upset, if a fool is vexed by something, he's going to make sure you know about it. He's going to let you know right away. If he's upset, if he's mad, if he's angry, he's going to vent his anger on you right away. He's not going to take the time to think about it. He's not going to count to three. He's going to make sure that you feel his pain. But on the other hand, a prudent man, a wise man, a thinking man is then going to conceal that sort of dishonor. What that means is if he feels that kind of vexation, if he feels that kind of frustration, he's going to conceal it. He's going to think about it. He's going to absorb it Uh, throughout the Bible. We are told things like, not to take another Christian to court and within the context of not taking another believer to court Paul says why aren't you willing instead rather than offending somebody else why aren't you willing to take the loss why aren't you willing, I use the phrase why aren't you willing to take the hit and that's what a wise man does a wise man doesn't vent his frustration immediately instead he will conceal that dishonor And then he who speaks truth, says verse 17, he who speaks truth says what is right. Obviously, he's talking about a court setting here because then he talks about a false witness. A false witness says what is deceitful. He's going to say a lie. So Solomon at this point seems to be talking about in a legal setting, in a court setting, that an honest man, a prudent man, an intelligent man is going to speak what is right. He's trustworthy. You can listen to him, and he's going to tell you what actually occurred, as opposed to false witnesses who will tell you lies, who will tell you deceit. This is such an important concept that it's even in the Ten Commandments. It's right there in the Big Ten. God said, don't bear false witness, against a brother don't say things that are not true about each other in a minute we're going to be told that lying having lying lips lying lips as verse 22 are an abomination to the Lord remember a couple weeks ago we talked about toy of awe things that are an abomination Well, lying lips and false witnessing lying against a brother He says that is the act of a fool. A false witness practices deceit. His lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. There is one who speaks rashly. Have you noticed what the common theme is so far? That's why I'm going through these fairly quick so you'll feel the common theme. The common theme is be careful how you talk. Be careful that what you're telling is the truth Make sure that you're not being a fool and letting your vexation and frustration immediately be known to everybody. Don't be somebody who's lying on your neighbor. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword. I think when we were reading James's words recently about controlling your tongue, one of the things that he said is that the tongue can start... Such a large fire, so quickly. There's so much damage that you can do with your tongue. There are so many things that you can say that really hurt a person. Solomon likes it, too. you walking up with a sword and just slicing through people with your words. Anybody here ever been sliced apart by somebody's words? Well, we all have. We all know what that's like. I won't make you raise your hand on this one. Anybody done the slicing? (laughs) Yeah. Of
0: course
1: not. Of course not. We all know that we're guilty. We all know that at some point in our life, we've become rash. At some point in our life, we've become offended. At some point in our life, we said, oh, yeah, well, if you say that to me or do that to me, well, I'm going to let you have it. And then we yank out every painful, hurtful thing we can think of and just slice the other person to bits. But look what Solomon says about such a person. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword. But on the other hand, the tongue of a wise person brings healing. That's the opposite of slashing somebody apart. You can slash somebody apart with your words, or you can use your words to lift somebody up, to repair somebody, to heal somebody to bring peace to a situation, to bring commonality between two former enemies. There are so many ways that your words can help, that your words can heal. I raised my kids, and thank goodness that's over. I I raised my kids to know a compliment costs nobody anything. Costs nothing. And so Megan here in her adult years, is really good even at the checkout counter. She's just really good at finding something positive to say to the, to the person at the counter. They can be ringing us up or running things through, and they're just bored, and they're just having a bad day, and they just they work at a grocery store, and they're just unhappy about their job. And Megan will say, what nice nails you have. And the person just lights up. Their whole day just got better. Or she'll say, I like your hair. What, you, you know, Just anything. And you know how much it cost Megan to say that? Nothing. Nothing. Not a thing. And yet it made somebody else's day completely better. You know that they went home that day thinking, oh, man, my nails are looking good. I didn't think anyone noticed. You know what it cost her?
0: She what? had to take her eyes off herself and focus on someone
1: else. Absolutely. Take your eyes off, off yourself. And look at somebody else. Find some way to brighten the path of whoever crosses your path so that as they walk away from you, they think, man, I'm glad that happened. I'm glad I crossed paths with them. But if you walk around with a terrible, sour attitude, number one, uh, that's not a great testimony when they find out later that you're supposedly a Christian. That's bad. Oh, Christians then must be really sour, unlikable people. But if you leave people feeling good, if you heal people with your words, if you listen to people's pains and then say things that are positive and uplifting and reassuring, that can do so much good. I was telling the men the other evening, Jeff and Tom and Mike and I got together, and I said, you know what Janine used to do at the church in Australia? She used to pick a couple people every month from the congregation who she would just send a card to with a positive little note written in it, handwritten, just thinking of you. You I hope you're having a good day. Just, Just some positive little thing. And she said 90 out of 100 times the following Sunday, they'd walk up to me and say something like, you have no idea how much I needed that. Oh, that really lifted my day. All it took was the effort to reach out and say something positive to someone. And uh, I think we all know what it's like to have somebody express care for us, to say something positive to us. It's so uplifting that once we know that, here comes the application part, once we know how positive and uplifting that is, we really ought to do it. So we ought to implement that in our life instead of just reading Solomon's words and thinking, yeah, that's probably good advice.
0: You know who else does that well? Who
1: Betty does that very well. Absolutely.
0: Clipping from the newspaper. Yep. She does just things
1: that I saw this and I thought of you. Yeah. Absolutely. That's part of her walking out her Christianity. What a great testimony. Yeah. Alright, so verse 19. Truthful lips. Are you feeling the theme? It's still about Talking. watch what you say watch how you say it watch whether you use your lips to rashly thrust through people with a sword or to heal people with your tongue Now, truthful lips will be established forever but a lying tongue is only for a moment I, I will tell you first that that word for a moment is a Hebrew idiomatic word that actually means like as quick as the blink of an eye it's just really quick What Solomon is getting at is that honest words, truthful words, become established. Those are words that people can listen to and trust. You want a demonstration of that? We're reading Proverbs that were written, what, 3,000 years ago? And they're honest, truthful words. We're still paying attention to them. How established are those words? But then Solomon would say, lying words. A lying tongue, who remembers that? Who pays attention? Nobody's helped or benefited by that. Nobody took the time to write it down. It doesn't become established. It becomes nothing. So truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. Verse 20. Deceit is in the heart of those who create or devise evil. You can read that one backwards too and say, people who devise evil in their heart, well then, they're full of deceit. Deceit means lying. Deceit means they're trying to fool you. And that's what's in their heart. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So since they have nothing but deceit in their heart, they're going to devise evil but counselors of peace bring joy. Counselors of peace have joy in their inner man, in their heart. Counselors of peace, what does that mean? People who speak peace and advise peace. People who bring reassuring, earlier he said healing, words. People who bring that kind of helpful language to people end up having joy in their heart. So here is a very practical application of why you should speak well of people, why you should heal people with your words, why you should tell the truth, why you should lift people up. Ultimately, that helps you. Ultimately, that's good for you. Ultimately, then you have joy, you have peace in your inner man because you know that you are out there doing helpful, ultimately heavenly things. If you know that you're walking about seeking to harm other people, that you're lying all the time to people, and that your heart is just full of deceitful thoughts, does that bring you any kind of peace? Does it make you feel good at the end of the day? When your head hits the pillow, are you laying there thinking, I'm a good person? If you do think that, then that really is deceitful. You really are lying to yourself, and it's true that the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But if you are helping people, if you're lifting people up, if you're saying positive things, if you're really paying attention to your tongue so that you're bringing healing and peace to people, well, then that brings joy to you. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace... Have joy. Speakers, counselors, advisors who want to bring peace to people have joy. Verse 21 says, no harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. So that phrase, no harm befalls the righteous, can't mean that the righteous people never have anything bad happen to them. But in contrast to the wicked, the wicked are filled with trouble. Wickedness is always going to beget trouble. As we've said in weeks past, if you're going about lying to people, hurting people, harming people, stealing from people, fooling people, deceitfully treating people, well then those people are going to be out to get you. But if you're bringing happiness and peace, if you're bringing joy, if you're bringing good words, if you're uplifting people, then they're not out to harm you. I think that's what Solomon is getting at. Not that if you're righteous, there's never going to be any harm coming to you. It means that people aren't going to be looking to harm you the way that they're looking to harm the wicked because the wicked are just full of trouble all the time. So then verse 22, lying lips, as we just said, are toy of awe. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But those who deal faithfully are his delight. Anybody here lately told a, a lie? Okay, don't raise your hands. Just in your head, pretend it's not you. Okay. We have a way, even in our um, culture, in our way of thinking, we have a way of categorizing lies. We actually refer to white lies. Like, those aren't as bad as, you know, the real lies. There, there's lying, there's real lying, and then there's these white lies. And then what have we done with it? We've even put a qualifier on that and said, little, little white lies. is just little white lies. It's not a big deal. I'm just, I'm lying. Well, then, are you taking this phrase, this word of God, this thing that Steve reminded us last week is the very word of God, are you taking these words to heart and applying them to your life? Are you speaking truth to people, or are you walking around thinking that your little lies don't really matter when, in fact, they are an abomination to God? I don't think it's haphazard that one of the ten is don't bear false witness. That's an absolute commandment from God. Don't lie against your neighbor. Don't be a witness who appears in court to say that you saw something when you didn't see it. Be truthful. Be honest. That is part of what it is to be a person of God. That is part of what it is to be a Christian. That is part of what it is to say that you are a God follower, that you are a Bible believer. All of that is demonstrated in how you live your life, how you control your tongue, the words that you say, and whether you are devising evil, devising schemes, telling lies, or are you just telling the truth? I've known people in my life who told lies when the truth would have worked just as well. There wasn't even a reason to lie. But it was just in their mind to just lie. It's amazing how many of you just nodded at me in unison because we know people like that who are just so addicted to lying that it's difficult for them to just go ahead and tell the truth. And yet that is an abomination to the Lord, Okay, so you want to delight God? You want to make God happy? I mean, we're Christian people. We're Bible people. We're God-fearing people. We ought to want to make God happy. It says here, those who deal faithfully, those who deal honestly... Those who in all their dealings, they have equal scales, which means in their business and and in the way that they raise their family, in the way that they're raising their children, in the way that they deal with their neighbors, and the ways that they conduct their lives, they deal faithfully, they deal honestly, they deal forthright with people. They're not conducting ways that they can come to an advantage They're not looking for ways that they can cheat somebody. They're not looking for any way that they can make up lies for anybody. They're just people who walk through their life dealing faithfully with people. It says here, that's God's delight. God is so happy with people like that. Why? Why would that delight God? Because that's people who are walking out their confession. That's people who are saying, I'm being like this because I believe in God, because I belong to Christ because I am a Bible follower. For all of those reasons, I'm going to treat you fairly. I'm going to treat you rightly. That like Peter says, be ready to give an answer to everyone who inquires about the hope that is within you. I've often contended that they're not going to ask. If you're just a sourpuss who's walking around who doesn't want to talk to anybody, then they're never going to ask because they don't see anything different in you. They don't see anything special in you. Why would they want to be like you? But if they see you being different, not being like the world, if they see that you have an internal joy, that you have an internal hope and expectation that makes you a different person, an honest person, somebody they can trust, somebody who when the going gets rough and they start thinking, who can I go to, they go, oh, yeah, I can go to him because he's always been a faithful, honest person. Well, that's what Solomon's getting here. If that's the way you walk out your life, that you deal with people faithfully, that demonstrates your love of God. That demonstrates your commitment to God's word. That shows that you really belong to Christ. You know, when people come to visit here at GCA, I always say kind of half-jokingly, and only half, I mind you, I'll say to folks, did everybody treat you OK here? After the service is over and they're walking out. And I say, did everybody treat you good here? Or do we have to take somebody out in the parking lot and beat them up? Oh, and they'd chuckle. And, and the response is always very exciting and reassuring to me. But the reason I ask the question is, number one, to make sure that everybody here did treat them OK, because that's what we ought to be doing. But number two, people say to me, The people here are so kind. The people here are so good. Oh, people came right up to me and spoke to me. And, oh, I've been visiting churches where everybody, you know, the frozen chosen. I've been going to see people and they don't even come over and say hi to me or anything. And so I get all this positive feedback about GCA, which makes me feel really good because we talk grace, grace, grace. We certainly ought to live grace, grace, grace. We certainly ought to be grace, grace, gracious people. And we ought to walk out our confession Again, that's what Solomon's getting at here. Don't just say you believe it. When you get home tonight and somebody says, what'd you learn tonight? And you say, well, I learned that God is delighted by people who walk faithfully. Don't let that just be head knowledge. Actually then, walk faithfully and be a delight to the Lord, especially knowing that it's an abomination to God if you're out there lying. Yes, ma'am. So how
0: essential is the Holy Spirit
1: very essential. I know good
0: non believers who live moral lives.
1: Okay. Do they really live moral lives?
0: Well, they seem You're talking
1: to. relative morality here. They, they
0: yeah. seem to.
1: Yeah. So your question is
0: I I don't know. I, I just feel like I'm absolutely dependent on the Holy Spirit to sure. ch- check my tongue, to make me pause before I speak to Give me the right
1: Okay, advice. gotcha. When Solomon wrote this, he wasn't writing to Christians. He was writing to Israel because he was the king of Israel. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit had not been given as it was at the day of Pentecost yet. And yet Solomon laid out this instruction. Yes, I believe that without the Holy Spirit, none of us would be able to walk out Christianity. Because we are all depraved, egocentric human beings at our core. We all want my way no matter what. We all want to be able to yell at anybody we want. Proven by the fact that from the time we're little kids, we, we yell at people, we cry at will, we want our way all the time. We're completely egocentric as little kids. And you know that, that that's the way they are by nature. You have to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You have to teach them fairness. You have to teach them don't cheat at games. You have to teach them you can't just yell at other people. You have to teach them not to be so egocentric because that's how they are naturally. That's just what's inborn and inbred in us. So we would never walk out our Christian profession were it not for the Holy Spirit. Having said that, you can't just sit at home in the corner and say, well, if the Holy Spirit wanted me to do good, I'd do good. I had a guy one time say to me, Jim, you're the one who teaches that God is sovereign, and I'm an alcoholic, and so I guess if God didn't want me to be an alcoholic, he'd change me. And my answer to him was, if you profess Christ and you profess that he's sovereign in your life, you would strive to walk in accordance with what you profess to believe. So yes, you're dependent on the Holy Spirit, but the New Testament has so many instructions for you now that you've received the Spirit. And it doesn't say the Spirit is just going to do all that through you and you have no responsibility. Instead, what it says, the Holy Spirit will empower you, but now do it
0: maybe the difference is that I could get my kids to behave on the outside,
1: mm-hmm. but only the Spirit can make them behave from the inside. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, by the way, that also answers what you had just said, that you had friends and neighbors who were not Christian but who acted moral. Right. Okay, why are they acting moral? Mostly because the society has put enough pressure on them to act in such a way so that they don't go to jail or suffer whatever the consequences are. That's why I said, but is that morality? It's only morality if it's coming from an internal sense in the heart of what it is to be right and just and moral to other people. It's not enough to just behave. It's the inspiration behind the behavior. In the end, you have to live your life in as God-honoring a methodology or way or outcome as you can make sense good question I think we left off at verse 22 so let's pick up at verse 23 this is really interesting to me a prudent man conceals knowledge but the heart of fools proclaims folly what Solomon is saying here is a prudent man doesn't have to brag that he's intelligent. A truly intelligent person, that was a weird laugh. <laughs> you were thinking of somebody. Yeah, name's Trump. Oh. oh, oh. <laughs> the prudent man, the intelligent man, the person who's really genuinely wise doesn't have to walk around saying Dig me, I'm a wise, intelligent, prudent man. Instead, he's just going to walk out his life in a wise, intelligent, prudent way, and the things that he says and the things that he does are going to demonstrate that he is a wise and intelligent person, and people are going to be suitably attracted to him. But on the other hand, a fool, the heart of a fool, the internal inclination of a fool, is to constantly proclaim himself. And in his proclaiming, he shows himself to be a fool. A fool is just going to talk. And if you listen to what he's saying, you're going to figure out pretty quickly he's a fool. And he can't wait to tell you about himself and his accomplishments and how great he is. And I think all the time when I hear people like that, you know, if you have to keep telling me how great you are, then it must not be obvious. A prudent man hides or conceals that he has knowledge. But the heart of a fool proclaims his foolishness, his folly. Verse 24, The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to labor." I don't believe that Solomon is saying here that if you are diligent, if you get up every day and go to work, that you're necessarily going to end up in leadership in government or something like that. But what he's saying is in most social situations, if you work hard, if you're diligent, you're going to rise to the top. Everybody starts at the bottom of the totem pole. Everybody starting a new job ends up having to get coffee for everybody else. You're the new guy. But if you're diligent, if you work hard, everybody's going to recognize that. Everybody's going to understand that you are a hard worker. And then when it comes time to promote somebody, when it comes time to give somebody opportunity and advancement, that's going to come your way because you've already shown yourself to be a diligent worker. I think that's what Solomon is kind of driving at here, that in such social situations, the hand of the diligent will end up in charge. They're the ones who end up ruling But a slack hand, somebody who's not willing to work, is the one who's going to end up not just being a laborer, but under forced labor. You're going to end up being somebody else's worker, somebody else's lackey, because you don't have the inspiration to get up and do the work that's required. Pastor
0: Jim, I think sometimes
1: that maybe Solomon is
0: talking about things here and now in the eternal
1: sure that may very well be the case he doesn't talk a lot about eternity but there are certainly eternal implications to the things he's saying he doesn't spell out a whole lot of heavenly eternal theology but there are things he says that you think yeah that can really apply to eternal consequences and since this is the word of God I think that's fair game I'm with you man Anxiety, boy, is this the truth. Verse 25, anxiety in the heart of a man weighs him down. That's a fact. If you're anxious, if you're eaten up with worry, if every time you lay down, you're, you're concerned about everything in the whole world, eventually, not only is that going to make you sicker, But it's going to weigh your heart down. It's going to be difficult for you to express any kind of real joy. It's going to be hard for you to express positive words to other people if you're always weighed down with worry. One of the great advantages of sovereign grace theology is that it relieves an awful lot of worry. I was raised in uh, Arminian theology that was constantly telling me what I had to do, how hard I had to work, how many more rules and laws I had to follow, or else God wasn't going to accept me. And all that did was give me nonstop worry. There was never a place where I thought, oh, I'm confident. Oh, I feel good. Oh, I have reassurance. Oh, I have that anticipation that when I die, God's going to be gracious and merciful to me. I had none of that. What I had was boom, 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 boom. What I had was go to work, do the stuff. What I had was you're not good enough no matter what you do. And that kind of worry leads to the kind of uh, anxiety that I lived with until I left the church. One day I just said enough and I ran away and sold my soul to rock and roll. And it was a long time before God called me back. But he called me back by the actual theology of the Bible, which is the theology that says God's got it. Christ has fully done it. Everything necessary for your salvation has been accomplished. And whatever comes into your life is what a sovereign God has ordained for your life. And the very, very good news about that was that I didn't have to worry anymore. It's like, oh, I don't have to worry about death. Christ accomplished it. I'm good with God I don't have to worry that God's going to be my judge he's my father he's the one that says to me come to my throne of grace okay that worry is gone and whatever comes to me in this lifetime whatever comes my way is something that first went through nail scarred hands to get to me so this is what God intended for me and planned for me for my good and edification for his ultimate glory and that relieves me of worry it also relieved me of the worry that I just wasn't evangelizing hard enough, that I wasn't converting enough people and bringing enough people into the church. Once I realized that it was God who did that, that it was God who has to enlighten people, it's God who draws people. Our job is just to tell the truth. Well, that was a great relief, a great load off my shoulders. Anyway, anxiety. We all know that anxiety in the heart of a man weighs it down i think in this context in the things that solomon has already said to us the heart of an evil man who is always devising evil plans his heart's never at rest he's always thinking about the next evil thing he can do or the evil things that he's already done and who's out to get him and how he's going to have harm and how he's going to have trouble he's never able to really rest And so anxiety in the heart of a man is going to weigh it down. But then look at the second half of verse 25. But a good word makes the heart glad. We already talked about that tonight. A good word, a positive word, an uplifting word. Saying something positive to somebody makes their heart glad. It lifts them up. You have all seen it. You've all experienced it. You know exactly what I'm talking about. That a good word to somebody immediately makes them feel better. Look, I'll put it this way. Uh, Conrad, can I pick on you for a moment? Hey, Hey, why not? (laughs) Okay, so in your recent hospitalization, you said that ultimately the doctors didn't conclude what was going on, right? They didn't earn their money. Right. But did you hear from anybody who was just happy to see you or who said a positive word or who greeted you and made your heart happy just because you had heard from them. Did that happen to you at all?
0: Yeah, he showed
1: up. He showed up. Nothing changed about your circumstances, but your heart was happier because of a good word, right? So that's the practical application of what Solomon's getting at. A good word makes the heart happy. Anxiety makes the heart heavy, makes you sickly. We need to move along here. A righteous, the righteous person, verse 26 says, the righteous is a guide to his neighbor. In other words, he helps his neighbor. He shows his neighbor the proper and the right way. But the way of the wicked, the guidance of the wicked, will lead them astray, will lead them into trouble, will lead them into problems. So that again is a contrast between what the righteous does and what the wicked does. The righteous are demonstrated by the fact that they guide their neighbor's honestly forthrightly and wicked people lead them astray verse 27 a slothful man we talked about this verse last week a slothful man does not roast his prey but the precious possession of a man is diligence okay the second half of that verse is the diligence being willing to get up and do the work actively thinking about how you can do your job and how you can do it better, how you can get up every day and be productive, how you can provide for your family, how you can provide for yourself and those that you love. That kind of diligence is a precious possession because not everybody has that. Some people are just slothful, but the first half of the verse says, a slothful man does not roast his prey, which means he has nothing to eat because he didn't have the diligence to get up and go kill something didn't have the diligence to get up and go do what had to be done in order to have something to roast, something to cook.
0: You know, I think that could also mean that when we do have something, we don't take care of it, and therefore, it's not
1: there when we need it. Sure, of you course. You your lawnmower out in the rain day
0: after day, it's not going to help you
1: cook yeah. your grass. And is that diligence? No. No. That would be slothful, exactly. All right, last verse for tonight, verse 28. In the way of the righteous is life, and in its pathway, there is no death. This is one of those verses, Sandy, which I think does have those eternal implications, does preach a little bit of a theology to us, because he says, if you walk, remember where we began, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. Verse 28, the way of the righteous. So the contrast is between the way of a fool and the way of a righteous person, the way of the righteous person ends up bringing life in everything that life entails, not just eternal life, but the blessings of this temporal life. It brings about positive life. It brings about the things that we want most in life, that we're loved by somebody, that we're cherished, that the things we do make a difference, that we have some value while we're here on the planet. All of that is the result of walking righteously, of being diligent, of doing the work, of treating people fairly, of saying right things with our mouth, of encouraging people, lifting people up, saying good words. And in its pathway, in that pathway of righteousness and uplifting people and saying positive things, in that pathway, there's no death. That doesn't engender death. That doesn't produce death. And ultimately, I think, eternally, there's no death to that. You got it? Got it. All right. Any questions about all that? Although I think we kind of caught our questions along the way.
0: I have a comment. Okay. All this discussion around lying—it's fascinating to me how
1: early it starts. Oh, immediately! Because oh, immediately!
0: I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old living in my house. Yeah. And the four-year-old never does anything wrong because if the question is asked, "Who did this?" Juby did it.
1: Yeah. Exactly. They did it. The and Bible says that, a though. Liar,
0: so we know what she does.
1: <laughs> she
0: still lies without hesitation. The
1: Bible says. Children of the wicked come out of the womb speaking lies. Out of the womb speaking lies. All right then. Oh, yes, sir. How do you know what God wants for your life? How do you know what God wants for your life? Right here. That's kind of the answer. I don't have a better answer for you. The more you know about this word, the more you're going to know about what God wants for your life. But for Tonight, to give you something to start with, to give you something to to work with, first thing God wants for your life, from what we just read, is honesty. That's the first thing you can work on right away. In dealing with kids at school, in dealing with your parents, be honest. I won't ask you, have you ever told a lie? Because if you're human, the answer is yes. But now you know, you've just heard it, that that's an abomination to God. He doesn't like lying lips. So that would be the first thing I would say, here's what God wants from you. He wants you to be honest. He wants you to walk out your life in a way that reflects the fact that you say you're a Christian. Here, You go to school, and let's say a friend says, what did you do last night? And you say, we went to church. So they say, oh, you're a churchgoer. You're a Christian. And then later, You start bagging out your friends, you start gossiping, you start using lousy language, you start and those people who you just said you were a Christian, those people are looking at you saying, That guy's not a Christian, or he's really lousy representative of Christ. Once you say that you are Christian, once you declare yourself to be an emissary, an ambassador, a representative of Christ on the planet then it's necessary that you walk your life like you are an emissary of Christ. So I would say that's the next step. And what does he want from you? Does that make sense? Yeah. And those are things that you can kind of actually do. You know, you, you catch yourself when you're talking to people. You know, you know, come on. You know when you're being ugly. You know when you're talking to other people and you're just saying lousy things that are hurting somebody else. You know when you're doing that. According to what we see here, stop it. Stop that. Catch yourself when you're doing it. And instead, make sure that the words you say to people are bringing about positive things. Right? Okay, we're going to check with you next week to see how it's going. Okay. Good question, though. Very good question. Because I did start the night tonight by saying, don't just hear the word, be a doer of the word. So, your question fit in perfectly with what we're talking about tonight. Don't just listen to it, apply it, walk it out. And I wish, by the way, how old are you now? You're like 14. 14. Okay, that was my guess. It was 14 or 28. I forgot which one. Okay, when I was 14, I really wish, I really wish that somebody had told me what I just told you.
0: Amen.
1: Because when I was 14, I was full of confusing religion, and I was full of the kind of do-stuff-to-try-to-get-into-heaven religion where nothing was ever good enough, and all it led to was despair and frustration. I wish when I was 14, somebody had told me, look, God loves you. God's not angry at you. God is your father. Now love him back. If somebody had told me that, it'd be like, oh, Oh, wait, no, I get that. I can do that. I love my own earthly dad, and I do what he wants me to do because I love him. Oh, you're saying do what God wants me to do because I love him. Oh, I was raised with do what God wants because you fear him and because he's going to get you and he's going to hurt you if you don't do it. And all that led to was despair. So I wish at 14 somebody had told me what I just told you.
0: I wish at 14 I would
1: have had the mind to ask the question. (laughs) (laughs) I keep think about the verse, I hope I quote it correctly,
0: that talks about live your life based on how much God has placed His Spirit inside of you. I'm probably misquoting it.
1: No, but you got the concept right.
0: It it, it sounds like it's saying that the Holy Spirit has a great part in of our lives as Christians as opposed to when they were
1: a little wrong yeah without the Holy Spirit like we were talking about earlier without the Holy Spirit do you think you'd have any concept of what genuine righteousness actually was you might do things just to avoid punishment but you wouldn't do the right thing because it was the right thing that's something that's been revealed to you through the spirit
0: this free will thing is kind, of, is kind of getting to me about something. I know we don't have free will in salvation. I'm aware of that. But I, I wonder how much free will do we have in our daily
1: lives? I used to, when I was first learning this sovereignty stuff, I became a very, very extreme sovereigntist. And I still mostly am. But I was reading maybe a year ago or so, I was reading some works by Luther. He said that our will has no influence on the things that are above us. Everything that is God, heaven, eternity, that's all above you. And you have no power, authority, will, or control over anything that's above you. But that your human will does play a part in anything that's below you. Like, am I going to eat Cheerios this morning or Cocoa Puffs? I think I could argue that God made that decision for you through you. But I would say, okay, Luther's attitude is that's something that's below you. And therefore you have, if not the will, you have the ability to decide this, not that.
0: Burgers or
1: cheeseburgers? Burger or cheeseburger. That's below you. You can decide that.
0: There are people who agonize about what God's will is concerning the color of socks they're going to put on in the morning. Yeah. Well, God decrees what socks we're going to wear, yeah. but it doesn't matter. Right. I don't have to try to you know pray and ask God what color of socks I'm going to put on. Yeah. Saying, well, I think I feel like these today. Yeah. And... It's a choice that I made under his decree. Under his decree, yeah. So. But it, it's not one of those things that, I mean.
1: I'm perfectly willing, ultimately, once I've chosen my socks and my cereal, I'm perfectly willing to, to believe, okay, God, in some way that I'm not aware of, influenced those decisions. But like Steve just said, that's not the big important stuff all the really big important stuff, all the stuff that's above me, everything that is you know, eternal and heavenly and godly and moral and right and wrong and eternal punishment and outer darkness, I have no control over any of that. I have no influence there. God hasn't given me any kind of authority in any of those areas. And so I like the way Luther put it, where you have no human will at all, in all those things that are above you. And there's lots of stuff above you. Ultimately, if I get to heaven and God says, I even chose your socks, I'm going to say, great, that's the kind of God I believe you are. Great. That's,
0: that's exactly what I was thinking.
1: percent like yeah. yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. You know, the Bible says the lot is cast into the lap And the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. That means detailed stuff is completely in God's hands. So I'm willing to say, okay, everything is utterly under his control. But as it's under his control, does he sometimes kind of leave it up to us to decide whether Cheerios or Cornflakes are things that don't matter that much? Luther argued, yeah, probably. I would say, I don't know. I'm willing for him to be sovereign over everything The best answer I can give you, by the way, Sandy, I'm sorry. I know you guys have all got to go. You got five more minutes?
0: Sure.
1: When my son was little, if he had a good day in school, he got to play his Nintendo when he came home. He also had Legos in his room. He also had Kinex in his room. He had all these different things in his room that he liked to do, all of which I provided and all of which were in his room. So as long as he was in his room doing those things, I knew he was safe. I knew where he was. If he had a bad day at school, he couldn't do any of that. So that was his inspiration to do good. He came home one day, had a great day at school, good report, everything else. I said to him, you can go in your room. And he said, what can I play with? And I said, anything you want. His eyes lit up, and he said to me, anything? Now, at that moment, he thought he had free will, free unencumbered will to do whatever he wanted. But everything he could do, I was in control of. He could do the Kinects, He could do you know, Legos. He could do Nintendo. But all those things were in his room, under my watchful eye so that's the way I kind of view our decision making with God every once in a while God says okay make a decision but the things you're able to decide from are still things he provided anyway so you're never deciding outside his will but you have the illusion of choice does that make sense? yeah do you want to go to bed now or in five? Either way, you're going to bed. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, you're done. This day's over. Yeah. All right. I need to let you go. You had your hand up a minute ago, Conrad. Did you have something? I, I think you covered it. Did we? Okay, good. The illusion of choice. The illusion of choice. Right. All right. Say goodbye to the internet folks.
0: Goodbye. 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 Do I get a choice in this?
1: No, you don't get any choice in this. Now say it like you're angry at them. <laughs> goodbye.